This is the 52 Insights Podcast, and I'm Ari Stein. Why do we see the world the way that we do? Are we all just leading delusional lives? These are all enormously important questions that remain challenging and ageless, especially in a world right now that is mired in enormous divisions. But what do these philosophically charged themes have to do with the highly decorated neuroscientist, psychologist and author, Lisa Feldman Barrett? Barrett has been exploring the complex inner workings of the brain for several decades. A distinguished professor at Northeastern University, she's among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research into psychology and neuroscience. She's widely known for her several controversial and important theories about how our brains operate. One that had initially gained her worldwide notoriety was back in 2017, emerging from her book, How Emotions Are Made. She courageously asserted that emotions have no more intrinsic value than, say, a nation state or the currency you possess printed on paper. That emotions are merely just a fabricated narrative that we as humans hang on to so potently. Recently, she followed this theory up with another challenging assertion in her 2020 book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. In this small but insightful handbook, she challenges us to overturn centuries of assumptions about the evolution of the brain. One that postulates its sole evolutionary function is to think. This, she asserts, is not the case at all, much the very opposite. Rather than to calculate and manage the energy that our bodies are trading in and out every single day. If only we could really listen to the counterintuitive wisdom found in Feldman Barrett's profoundly important work, we might not be in the paralyzed state that we as a species find ourselves in. You always get a hunch when moving through the world that we're an incredibly irrational species, but it's nice to hear it in such empirical terms. It asserts a suspicion that many of us, I suspect, already have. In this fascinating interview with Lisa, who spoke to me at a home outside of Boston, we exchanged several ideas, some about why we're constantly feeling the need to make shit up as humans, the biological advantages of being equanimous, and how having a bit more humility as a species might just benefit us all. You know, this is such a strange period uh, for so many of us. Is there anything during this period that has tested or, or validated the work that you do? If what you're asking me yeah. is whether um, that the events of the past year or so have been consistent with that I can explain some of them or understand them in ways that are consistent with my work, the hypotheses I have or the understandings that I have, then yes, absolutely. In in ways um, that are, you know, super interesting as a scientist, but somewhat tragic and troublesome as a person. Have, have, are there any that you would say that the one that strikes you more so than others is being pretty consistent? Are you able to elaborate on that? I, I certainly can, but it would require a little bit of setup, right? So, um, but sure, oh, okay, I right. mean, I think... Um, understanding something about your brain's job in regulating your body and how people 
largely understand that in in very psychological ways, but sometimes it's really good to understand what's happening under the hood because it helps you reframe a little bit or understand differently um, what's actually going on. So um, in terms of the stress that people are feeling right now, um, the increases in you know rates of depression and anxiety, um, increases actually in rates of suicide, um, uh, why that that happens, this happens, to, it's always tragic, but it's particularly problematic when you're talking about trying to protect people from infection, a virus born infection, or trying to vaccinate them. Um, th there's sort of a perfect storm that I think people are not necessarily aware of. Um, but that I actually predicted a year ago would would happen. Um, I'm not a virologist. I'm not a physician. But uh, there, I think there are a whole set of causal, important causal factors to people's health that they just aren't. They're so mundane that people are just missing mi missing them. So I think that's one piece. Um, and then I think another piece has to do with the rising. Um, rising nationalism in various places. And um, I actually think that I can speculate, and I have speculated publicly and in print, um, about how that's related to more biological aspects of how your brain is controlling your body. So that may seem like a really big leap. But to me, there's a really obvious hypothesis there and it's a speculation because I haven't tested it in a lab, but I, it's a speculation that fits. I want to kind of just unpack a little bit of that that rising nationalism that you talk about. We might follow a different tangent here. Um, you say in your book, um, as far as we know, humans are the only animals whose brains have enough capacity for compression and abstraction to create a type of social reality, which is an incredible gift. And you go on to say that, you know, we can simply make stuff up like a meme or a tradition or a lore. And if other people treat it as real, um, then it becomes real. I mean, to me, that feels really relevant right now. Um, some of those fabrications, I guess, can be helpful, but many people are drowning in all sorts of fabrications right now. I mean, we see an influx of conspiratorial thinking that is proving to be harmful, not just to like one the people that are that are that are you know fabricating it, but to our reality as well, a type of delusional thinking or even a, a mass psychosis. So, do you think that something bigger is going on? Again, this is probably more speculation, or that we're being engineered or overwhelmed. That there's a type of groupthink going on. What what do you make of this kind of phenomenon? I think the first thing to realize is that. The phenomena that we're talking about are really complex. And by complex, I don't just mean like super complicated. I mean, most things don't work in a simple mechanistic way where there are one or two big causes that, you know, um, that produce a, an outcome in a very linear, direct way. Most systems are complex meaning there are lots of little causes that nudge 
the system in one direction or in another, and that no um, single cause is really on its own sufficient. They might be necessary, but it isn't sufficient, right? So what you have is a a, a whole um, symphony of little necessary causes that all work together. And I think that's what's happening right now. All human brains that are neurotypical have the capacity for abstraction. So what humans can do is we can collectively not just select features, but actually impose features on things that, that impose functions on things, give them features that they normally wouldn't have by virtue of their physical nature. But in this instance, the, the, the kind of like, you know, the paradigm that I'm talking about where you have large groups of people abstracting, obviously. I mean, the undertone of your work is that, you know, we do live in some type of alternate reality all the time. We're making things up. But for this scenario where people are making things up and, and it's causing us ill will in, in, in many different types of ways, they're abstracting, they're making you know, delusional statements and delusional thoughts, willingly, together. We're um, always making delusional thoughts I together. Know. That's my point. I know. My point I, is that I, we I, make I, shit up, we agree on it, we give it a label, a word, and then it becomes real. We all impose the function of currency on little pieces of paper, and then poof. I get it, yeah. Poof. They have that, cur- they have that value. Or... But this, but this one is so much more harmful. It just seems like it carries a lot more weight. I'm not, uh, you'd, you'd expect, no, yeah. yeah. I know, my I know. point is that, yeah. yes, of course you're yeah. right. But, yeah. But, yeah. It, but my point is yeah. there's nothing yeah. unusual going on here in the sense that, <laughs> in the sense that okay. okay, so for example, take something like air rights. What are air rights? Air rights are the space above a building. You can buy and sell air Mm-hmm. air above a building you can buy and sell which has value only because a group of people decided that it had value yeah it, what's happening right now for example in the united states what's happening right now is well obviously not one thing uh, but, um. but one way to think about it is that little pieces of paper that have a little black mark on it as it, which we would call a vote, we endow this little piece of paper mm. with a little black mark on mm. it to have very, very special functional meaning. And we have some people saying, a lot of people saying, as long as you're a citizen of the United States, your little black mark on a piece of paper or, or electronically or whatever, but you know, figuratively or literally, your little that's a vote and that counts. That counts. And then we have other people saying, no, only certain people in the United States actually get to have a vote, meaning only for some people, their little black mark on a piece of paper counts as a vote. And for other people, it's illegitimate. So it, it's exactly I, it, the same. It's exactly the same as some people saying Bitcoin. I think Bitcoin, I think Bitcoin is valuable and I'm going to pay currency for it to get it. I'm going to buy it and sell it. And other people saying 
This is just a bunch of made-up shit. You know, it's funny. I was expecting some deep, elaborate kind of, um, you know, exploratory or, you know, vast answer. But in the end, you're just probably, you know, um, uh, committing to the same uh, uh, thing that, that you're talking about in your book, that we're just highly illogical and in some ways delusional and that we make up our own realities. It just depends. Everyone has their own reality in, in some type of way. I wanted to ask though. I'm not, I'm um, not, saying, sorry, I'm not saying everyone has their own reality. Social reality depends on a group of people agreeing. What's happening sure, what's happening sure. in the United States and probably in England with Brexit and you know in, in Poland and in other countries where there, you know, there's rising nationalism is that there are two separate social realities that are, I would say metaphorically at war. But it might not be metaphorical, right? We just saw people literally storm the uh, halls of Congress in the United States. So the war may not be so literal. I mean, it may not be so uh, metaphorical anymore. But but what's happening here is that that there are different groups of people who are who have their own collective agreement, one group and another group. This group collectively agrees on something. This group collectively agrees on something, but they don't agree with each other. This is what happens when you have, you know, a revolution or um, or real strife. When you have large groups of people who have different social realities. I get a sense from your book that we aggrandize ourselves as a species, or at least I get the feeling. I get the feeling that that we view ourselves, you know, in quite an arrogant way, um, and that we hold ourselves in quite a high regard as the kind of real intellectual apex predator. And I guess in a sense that takes a whole lot of energy as a trade-off in itself, moving around the savannah just thinking like we're the shit all the time. Um, why do you think, and I might be wrong here, but this is the sense that I, I get, why do you think we view ourselves in such a high regard? Well, this goes back a very long way. I mean, this is not something that modern um, scientists invented, right? This goes all the way back to Aristotle. I mean, it, it's all it's it has a very very long history. Um, um, that uh, we um, that our understanding of our place in nature is always through the lens of our you know the the always through the lens of our, our own glasses, right? So we look at other animals, we look at ourselves, we look at what we're good at that they're not good at. Because, um, you know, humans can do some pretty remarkable things. Um, and we then we order species from lower to higher based on how close they are to us. But this is a... And I should point out, this is a very non-Darwinian way of understanding species, but Darwin himself subscribed to this very non-Darwinian way, right? So Darwin himself ordered species also in this, what's called a phylogenetic ordering. Um, this phylogenetic ordering was imposed on different cultures. So uh, Western culture was seen as very, very, you know, at the pinnacle of, of evolution and um, 
you know, at more Aboriginal cultures, which were referred to as primitive, were seen as less uh, evolved. This is uh, now we're talking like 18th century, 19th century uh, thinking, um, early 20th century thinking, even. Um, and there may be some people who still think this way today. But that kind of thinking is, even though Darwin himself subscribed to it to some extent, is actually very, very inconsistent with um, the truest notions of natural selection, which is that a species lives, the individuals of a species live in an environment and they become very well adapted to that environment. So it's true that there are some really, really remarkable things that we can do that other animals can't. But it is also true that there are some really, really remarkable things that other animals can do that we cannot. And we find them so remarkable that we endow our superheroes with them, these abilities. Um, so, you know, to use the phrasing of Henry Gee, who is a paleo, I, I think he's a paleontologist, um, who um, actually is an editor at Nature, the magazine Nature. Um, he wrote a fantastic book called The Accidental Species. And it's a little book. And, you know, he says, you know, evolution did not aim itself towards us. <laughs> right? We aren't the pinnacle of everything except perhaps in our own minds. Thinking of ourselves as the pinnacle of anything really is um, not helpful uh, because it, it, um, it masks the things that we have in common with other animals that are really important to us understanding how we ourselves function. One of the arguments that you make is that, um, you know, uh, we, is, our brains really aren't made for thinking, they're made for tracking resources like water, salt and glucose. It's essentially a body budgeting exercise. I like the way that you, that you phrase that. Now, I, you know, I'm someone that, 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 has, that takes some um, mindfulness very, very seriously. I've been meditating for many years. And um, when, I'm, when I was reading your book and listening to you talk in several discussions, I kept thinking about the idea of trade-offs, depending on what environment you're in. And, you know, you're constantly being tested uh, in, in your life. So I'm interested to know, is there an argument to be made somewhere that trying to be equanimous would help mitigate some of that damage that you're making in that body budgeting exercise? Um, I'm constantly thinking about observing the mind without judgment, and those kinds of exercises could potentially have enormously helpful benefits um, in, 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 that, in that tracking exercise. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I absolutely know what you mean. Actually, in my first book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, I talk, I don't actually use the word equanimity, but I, or actually I might use the word equanimity, I'm not sure, but I, I can't remember at this point, you know, the, I mean, the book's been published for four years, so it's at this point. But I do talk about um, um, Buddhist, uh, I talk about contemplative approaches to the self and uh, I talk about how um, the value of um, trying to become experientially blind to 
objects and events in, in the world and to try to experience them as sense data as opposed to as actual objects that we see and react and see and, and respond to. Um, at now, when you say experientially blind, just, just for our listeners, you, you're essentially saying not to judge the data that's coming in, essentially? Is that what you're saying? I'm saying not to judge it in relation to you. So I, the way that I would say it now is a little different than the way that I said it then. Um, but um, here's how I would say it now. One idea that philosophers and, and scientists are considering is that the human or is that nervous systems in animals did not evolve to react to things in the world. Instead, at the you know, go back 500 million years ago, the thought is that that or the evidence suggests that the animals that existed at that time had very had somewhat complex ways of moving, but they had, you know, some systems that their bodies that allowed them to move in complex ways, but they had no detailed senses of the outside world at all. So what they had was an internal coordinating system. If you have a bunch of parts that have to um, coordinate together so that you can move, um, then what you have is like an internal an internal system that um, allows those parts to speak to each other. And when something from the outside world comes and impinges itself upon the animal's body, that internal coordination is disrupted. So in a sense, in a way, you get an external sense for free. Um, it doesn't tell you, when you have an internal perturbation, it doesn't tell you what's out there. It doesn't tell you what to do about it. It just tells you something's wrong or something's, you know, something's wrong. That's it. This is really nicely described in a, a recent book uh, by Peter Godfrey Smith called Metazoa. He does a really nice job of describing this. But here's what I want to say. You have an internal coordination system. Your brain is always regulating your body. Your body is always sending information back to your brain. You don't experience that sense data literally as tugs and squirts and you know whatever. You're not wired to what you what evolution gave you is a very simple um, set of feelings, which are not emotions. They're just feelings, simple feelings that tell you the state of your body budget. Pleasantness, unpleasantness, you know, jitteriness or, or kind of tranquility. These really simple feelings are like a barometer for your body budget. And when they are disrupted, the immediate thing that your brain attempts to do is to look to the outside world to figure out what's wrong. When you feel bad, your brain immediately assumes that, that something must be wrong in the world. But your internal system 
is complex, meaning lots of little things are influencing that internal coordination system. Your body budgeting could be off because you haven't slept. Your body budgeting could be off because you haven't eaten healthfully. You haven't exercised. Your body budgeting could be off because we're social animals, meaning we evolved to help each other to be the caretakers of each other's body budgets. And if you're by yourself, your brain is having to work overtime to regulate your body. And so you're going to be dealing with um, a, a sort of a, a, a bigger uh, cost than normally that you would. And so you could start running a deficit. If you spend too much time in a situation that is uncertain to you, where you can't predict the outcome and things are novel or uncertain, again, that's going to be more expensive and there's going to be more costs there. And so the point is that what we're doing, when you have discomfort in your body, it's really easy for you to experience that as distress, that something in the world in relation to you is wrong. Equanimity is the ability to experience what is going on in your body without, like those feelings that come from your body, without personalizing it. So it's the difference between discomfort and distress. Yeah, nicely put. Do you ever like think about, you know, what our minds and our bodies might look like? It's a highly speculative question, but nonetheless might be worth exploring. 100 or 200 years from now, what our, what our brains and our, not our, more than that, sorry, not 100, probably many more hundreds. If you think about what you're talking about, our brains and our bodies might get really good at making these trade-offs and thinking about what works for us and what doesn't. So that, you know, in hundreds of years from now, our bodies and brains might look differently in terms of those trade-offs and what we might be looking at as a human. Is that something you ever think of or think there's some kind of weight to that? I read those kinds of discussions like I read science fiction for fun. If you just look back hundreds of years, you can see people were really horrible at predicting the future. And I think we are also horrible at predicting the future. You know, my husband likes to say that, uh, who's a computer scientist, uh, when, you go to, when you go to college, you go to university, you're training for a job that doesn't even exist yet, probably. And you don't even know what jobs are going to be available to you in 10 years from now. I just think that Whatever you're predicting about the future is based on the past. It's based on the past, on your past or what you're familiar with. So many things can happen. So I think those kinds of speculations are interesting, but I personally myself am very rooted in trying to understand how the brains that we have on this planet right now work. I think that's complicated enough. You know, the three pound blob between your ears is the most complicated, one of the most complicated um, organs that uh, that evolution has ever produced. For me, that's a big enough challenge. And that's essentially all informed by the past. I mean, you, 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 you rely on a heavy body of knowledge about where we've come from and how we've evolved to understand where we're, we're heading as well. Absolutely. Don't, wouldn't you it's say? 2020, it's 2020 hindsight, isn't it? It's already happened. Um, trying to speculate yeah. what's going to happen in the future. Um, yeah, it's just, I'm not, I don't, I don't knock other people for doing it. It's just not where I prefer to spend my time. Yeah. 
I mean, I, it I, seems like a very mas masculine domain. I like to read about <laughs> it. I just, I treat it like, yeah. a, like science fiction. It's interesting and fun. Is there a kind of advantage to having that reductionist view of the world, like constantly paring things down so that we can agree on things? Would you say there's kind of a, an advantage to feeling or thinking like that? So we have to agree what anger is as a, as a universal experience, at least my wife, so that we can get along. We have to agree what a nation state is. We're constantly reducing things um, because to me it would seem like you know, over-complicating over things would, would cost too much energy, but maybe I'm wrong. So is, is there an advantage to constantly reducing things as humans? What would be the alternative? Well, you can certainly tell yourself a story. You can reduce things to the point of simplicity and tell yourself a story that anger is universal. Good. I mean, what, you're welcome to do that. It won't help you at all if you travel outside the borders of your own country and probably outside the borders of your own house. Actually, it might not even help you inside your house. Uh, it, you know, I, I just think that you can tell yourself whatever story you want, but the world is what it is and it doesn't really care what story you tell. You know, it depends on what your goal is. You can, you know, I, my goal is to try to understand what emotions are and how they work in real human brains, in real human brains that converse with real human bodies all over the world. Um, and I guess what I would say is this, whose, whose definition wins then? Yours? Western world, the Western world's definition. I mean, we we call that you know um, uh, imperialism of of a of a fairly nasty sort. When we say our way of defining something is the right way, and you're going to change so that our way remains right. Your brain is a complex system. It works in a complex way, meaning it has many, many, many little parts that can produce something more that are, than are the sum of its parts. You, if you define anger yeah. as uh, a scowl or you define fear as freezing behavior, then you are missing a large portion of the instances of anger and fear that actually exist in people, not only in people around the world, but in people in your own backyard. You know, if you look at the expressions facially that people make when they're angry, they do scowl about 30% of the time, which is more than chance. And it gets you a paper in a very good journal. Yeah. But it means 70% of the time you will be wrong. Yeah. But if you know what you know, and obviously you know a hell of a lot as a decorated neuroscientist, psychologist, and author, you must struggle with the way that you see the world with so much uh, miscommunication emotionally and, and the like. <laughs> well, I, what, I, what I struggle with is um, that if I struggle with anything, I would say it's that they're too certain they're right, they're, they're not curious enough, and I would say they willfully ignore data that would potentially change their minds. Um, that it, so I think that's what's frustrating. Um, and I wouldn't say that I'm frustrated with the average everyday person because 
the average everyday person right now is has a really difficult path in front of them and that is where do they get the data from like where do they where do they get information from they you know it's very challenging actually um to um even if you wanted to challenge your own deeply held beliefs and treat them like hypotheses to be tested against data it's very challenging to do that at the moment but yeah i think your work sorry no, go no, on. i was just going to say but i think that's really what i think if people if everyone was just a little less certain and uh, everyone was just a little more curious and everyone appreciated the breadth of variation that exists in in each other and they didn't what you call reductionism, I call essentialism, which is very not Buddhist, I would say. <laughs> it's a very not contemplative approach to the world. Um, I think if everyone just took a step back from their certainty and approached each other with a little more curiosity, we would be in a much better place. But curiosity is expensive metabolically. You know, it's like a workout for your brain. Um, and a lot of people right now just don't, to use my daughter's phrasing, you know, just don't have the spoons. Their cutlery drawer is empty. You know, their body budgets are running a deficit. Exhausted, yeah. Are there concepts which, which you, you feel like you're not sure of, which we have not grasped, that could potentially distort our idea of who we are as humans? Does that question kind of... Makes sense. You talk about concepts in itself. I'm just wondering, are there potential ideas or concepts that potentially you need to put into this puzzle to kind of connect the dots of who we are as humans, but you don't feel like we've grasped them yet? I don't, I don't, yes, yeah, so many that we would be here for hours. I mean, I, I think yeah. to understand... What, to understand what I'm saying, I think you should understand that, you know, body budgeting is a metaphor for a, a more, a very complicated process called allostasis, um, meaning your brain is constantly anticipating the needs of your body and attempting to meet those needs before they arise. Body, the, the trouble with metaphors, well, metaphors are a bit of a Faustian bargain, you know, because on the one hand, they allow you to describe something very complicated in, in simpler terms. On the other hand, they sometimes, people mistake them for actual explanations. So body budgeting, for example, we understand that the brain does it. Do we understand how the brain does it? Well, only in the, only in the sketchiest terms do we understand it. Um, you know, we understand that, you know, we don't, humans don't experience every little, um, like right now in each of us, in you and me and every listener we have right now, there's a whole drama going on inside our own bodies that we are largely unaware of um, and that we experience as these simple feelings like mood or what a scientist would call affect. Do we understand how the brain takes something physical and conjures something mental out of it? Yeah. Not really. We we understand that it's happening, but we don't really know 
how it's happening. We know where it might be happening in the brain, but the question of where something is happening is not an explanation for how it is happening. So there are many, many things that we don't know. And what I'm giving you here and, and in the book is um, my best guess based on what I know and what I've read and what my fellow, many of my fellow scientists um, uh, think is the best explanation, but that could, that could change. Uh, with a great, you know, with great discoveries in, that could be just around the corner. That was the renowned neuroscientist, psychologist and author, Lisa Feldman Barrett, talking about her latest work, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, out in the UK in early March. Make sure you pick up a copy. It's a brilliant read. You've been listening to another episode of 52 Insights with Ari Stein. Sign up to our newsletter to get notifications of our upcoming episodes. And until then, stay safe and well.